Well, I think you know what's coming. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 53. Thank you for so many of you choosing to bring your Bibles each Sunday. If you happen to be here and don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have red ones in the seat rack near you. If you want to take it out, I'm told that John chapter 7 is found somewhere between page 700 and 800, but again, about three-fourths of the way back in our Bibles, and we're taking time this year to study encounters that people had with Christ in John's gospel, and today we're going to be looking at another one at a place in the Bible called Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to explain that, but once you've gotten that marked, let me mention several things about this passage that we're going to read today. And so first, if you're following along in the notes, I hope you'll see that one of the questions this passage asks and that you and I need to grapple with and answer is this one. Is Jesus the Christ of God? Is Jesus the Christ of God? Now, some of us are used to thinking that Jesus Christ is his last name. But Christ is a title. Jesus was his name. And the idea here is that Christ means Messiah, anointed one. So when we sang that song earlier, Jesus, Messiah. And most of us may say, well, isn't that just a Jewish thing? The Christ, the Messiah. Why, why the big deal? Why does it matter if I answer as Jesus, the Christ of God? Well, friends, what we learn in the Bible is that at the center of what God is doing in human history, it all pivots on the Christ, the Messiah, what he's going to do. That is when he's going to do his most important work. And out of what he does with the Messiah, everything else will flow. So it's not just a Jewish thing. It's about every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue. And therefore, is Jesus the Christ of God? Now, I bring that up because if you're still following in the notes there in that line, I I want you to see in this text today, the Christ, that phrase is going to be mentioned five times. You'll see that it's listed in verse 26, 27, 31, 41, and 42. And that just tells us that this was really on people's minds. Some people go, well, it's not on my mind much at all. Can I just tell you, I can relate to that. But one of the things God wants us to do is to realize that we are so caught up with ourselves. We are so caught up with living a life revolving around ourselves that he wants to change that. He wants us to have a life that revolves around him, what he's doing, his timetable, his plans, his will, his purpose. And that when you and I begin to get more interested in him, we'll be more interested in his Messiah, his Christ. Is Jesus the Christ of God? Now, I also bring this up because from the very beginning, we've tried to mention that John, the gospel writer, one of Jesus' own disciples, plays his cards early on and tells us why, or plays his cards in this this gospel, tells us why he wrote this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's found in John chapter 20, verse 31. In verse 30, he says, there's all kinds of miraculous signs that I could tell you about that Jesus did. There's so many things he did while he was here on earth, I can't tell you about all of them. But look at what verse 31 says, and I'd like for us to read it together so we know why we're studying this together. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why is it important whether or not Jesus is the Christ? Because if he is... The possibility of having life in his name is huge. Second thing I want you to see before we look at this passage is that we're going to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles today. I mentioned this last week. And my prayer is that by the time we're done today, you will find that this understanding of what the Feast of Tabernacles is 
will add to your appreciation for what Jesus says here in John chapter 7. So if you're following along, the Feast of Tabernacles has a water ceremony in it, and that's going to be a key point to notice later when we're reading this. It has a water ceremony in it. All the different feasts and festivals that the Jewish people celebrated were to help them remember what God had done in the past, to help them live in the present more alive to him, and then to look to the future for what he was going to do. And the Feast of Tabernacles is no exception. When they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, this water ceremony reminded them that when they had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, God had been incredibly faithful to them. He miraculously provided water in the middle of the desert. I don't know if you've ever read this before, but they got to a place, and when you have a million to two million people plus livestock traveling, and you're in the desert and there's no water, it's a big problem. And so what we see here is look at Exodus 17, verse 6. Um, it says this. God says, I will stand before you on the rock of Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, Moses, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock, as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now, just imagine this. Probably wasn't a tiny rock. It was probably a big part of the rock on the side of Mount Sinai. And when he struck the rock, not just water dribbled out, it gushed out. It just came flying out, and people all of a sudden realized this is going to be enough. This is going to help us. This isn't just a one-time flash-in-the-pan thing. He's providing for us right here in the middle of the desert. So this water ceremony would be incorporated when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a seven-day event that eventually turned into an eight-day event. Third thing I want you to see before we look at John chapter 7 is this, is that you're going to see as we read through these verses that just like in our day, in that day, people are divided if you're following along. People are divided in what they do with Jesus. People are divided in what they do with Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, when he teaches, when he does miraculous signs, not everybody hires a marching band. Not everybody's thrilled. Not everybody's excited. A lot of people are threatened. A lot of people are confused. But the response that people make shows a lot about where their heart is. And I hope you'll see today that the most important thing in your life and mine is what we do with Jesus. Whenever I try and work on a message and try and read it first through my own life and then as I try and think about teaching it for us as a church family, I try and answer this question before I ever stand up and talk to you. Why do we need this message? Why, why do we need this scripture passage? Why is it so important? Because one of the reasons we need it is because one day, as Brian already referred to, we are going to stand and give an account for what we did with Jesus. It's on your calendar. It's on mine. You may not be aware of that, but the Bible says all of us, all of us will stand before the throne of God and give an account for what we've done with Jesus. And because of that, Jesus says something in this passage that's very clear of what he commands us and recommends for us to do. And whether or not we do that can make the difference between having life in his name, having living water working in our life. And so I want to pray that he'll help us know exactly where we are with him today as we study this passage. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is living and active and sharper than anything. There is something about your word that has an authority and it speaks to our lives. I pray that you will honor 
what Jesus said there at the Feast of Tabernacles, that you'll help us understand the context better, and that as a result, we'll know exactly where we stand today with you, what we're doing with you, not just the people in the crowd and how they encountered you. I don't know how you do it, Jesus, but you make it possible for us to encounter you 2,000 years later because you have risen from the dead, you are alive. So help us meet you today in our study of your word. Amen. All right, so I told you to mark your spot. If you can still do that, on the notes, you'll see that there's a lot of space. Well, not a lot, but there's some space around at the Feast of Tabernacles. And what I want to do is tell you some things about the Feast of Tabernacles that I hope will give you enough background so that by the time we read this passage, lights will be going off and you'll be going, oh, that's what that means. That's, wow, that helps a lot. That's my prayer, okay? So here's several things about the Feast of Tabernacles. Very first thing, God instituted it. In other words, he wanted us to do this. And he tells us how to do this in Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15. Look at his clear instructions in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on when we come to John 7. He says this to his people, Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, for seven days celebrate the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. And he goes on and gives some more instructions and says this, For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. And that leads us to understand something about this feast. There were three major feasts. I mentioned this last week, I'll just say it again. In the early spring, there was the Feast of Passover. And then they had, in later spring, they had the Feast of Pentecost. And then, in the early fall, late September, early October, was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was always after their harvest was completed, as you saw. So these people were usually filled with gratitude for how God had supplied yet another year. And as they would gather in Jerusalem, many had to travel to get there. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles for a reason. I don't know if you've ever heard what a tabernacle is, but a tabernacle is a temporary structure. A tabernacle is not a permanent thing. So sometimes it was called the Feast of Booths, Feast of Shelters. The idea is, is that in Jerusalem, when these thousands of people would come to the city, they would build for seven days temporary shelters out of branches, out of leaves, out of palm branches, things like that, and they would live in these temporary structures. Now, just imagine a city filled with this kind of stuff. And um, if you were really excited about getting the Feast of Tabernacles, you wanted to get your little shelter as close to the temple as possible because you didn't want to miss all the action that was going to happen over those seven days. And the second thing that we just saw is, is that there, this was by far and away of all three feasts, this was the most joyful of them all. There was singing, there was music, there was dancing, there was all kinds of events that just made people's hearts glad. A couple reasons for that. One, after the harvest, most people were just so relieved that another year God had provided. But the second reason is that just several days before in the Jewish calendar is what's called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. A very solemn thing where they spent an entire day fasting and remembering that they needed to be cleansed from their sins. There's something about having a very solemn occasion, going through a very deep, quiet, sad time, and then coming to something that's very joyful. 
If you've ever gone through a hard time and then experienced joy after that, there was something deeper inside of you that could experience that joy with more readiness. And these people had that. And so there was this anticipation. And also because I think they were going to say, and I'll get to see, you know, Larry and Mary and Bob. I guess those weren't Jewish names. But they were saying, I'm going to get to see a lot of different people that believe in our God too. So they were very excited. Okay? Another thing that I want you to see is that the emphasis was very much on the Messiah. As we already talked about, they not only looked back but at what, how God had provided, but they were looking ahead. So in this passage, I already mentioned this to you, five times there's going to be this phrase, is this a Christ? Is, is, is he the Messiah? There was this sense because the Feast of Tabernacles got you prepared, not just for what God did in the past, what is he going to do in the future? And might it be today? Might it be this week? Might it be now? Might we be in the chapter of the Messiah? Now, one of the ways we know this is that when the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated, similar to some of their feasts, they sang a lot. Can I just stop and say something? As the choir was singing, as we were singing earlier, you know one of the marks that God is working mightily in a group of people? They sing. The song of the Lord, just, it's just there, is, there is a joy and there's a depth when people sing and you know that kind of thing. And so there was this kind of joy, the, the, the Messiah, but the way we know it is that in the Psalms, which we're going to study this summer in July and August, in the Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 is a particular section called the Hallel. Hallel in Hebrew means praise. So earlier when we were singing that song, Hallelujah, Yah is short for Yahweh, Hallelujah, praise you, Lord. Hallelujah, that's what it means. And so Hallel was a particular group of the Psalms that people would sing. They were called the Song of Ascents, and they would sing this. And as they did that, they, they came to Psalm 118, which was the last one. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then they would say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would say, Hosanna, save now. Messiah, come now. And there was this huge anticipation. Last thing I want to tell you about has to do with this water ceremony that I was talking about. A better way to say it is a water drawing ceremony. It was something that happened every morning. Let me read to you from what one commentator shares, and then I'll make some other comments. He said, each day of the feast witnessed a water ceremony in which a procession of priests descended to the south side of the city of Jerusalem to a pool called the Pool of Siloam, which flowed just outside the city. There, a high priest or a priest filled a golden pitcher as a choir of people chanted Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The water was then carried back up the hill to the water gate, and then followed by crowds. Now picture this. Thousands and thousands of people following the priest who has this golden pitcher, and in their hands, in their right hand, they have palm branches. And they're singing, Hosanna! And they're singing the songs of the Hallel. And they're also, in their left hand, had a piece of fruit, which reminded them that they had experienced the harvest. And so they are just waving these. They're singing. They're joyful. They're following the water as a reminder. Our God provides. And as they made their way up the hill, it says the crowd would shake these in their hands and sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. When the procession arrived at the temple, the priest would climb the altar steps and pour the water onto the altar while the crowd circled him and continued singing. And then on the seventh day, 
the greatest day of the festival, this procession took place seven times. One of my mentors said that in his studies, when they got to this seventh time of marching around the altar, as he held up the golden pitcher, the people would urge him to lift it higher and higher to celebrate their joy and be able to see how God had provided, and he would. Now just picture this, because we're told also that the priest, these very dignified men that wore these robes that could make them so subdued, began to dance on the seventh day. And as they began to dance around the altar, picture the most dignified person that you know in our church doing a jig. <laughs> they, were, they were filled with joy, we worship you, Lord, for being the one who provides. Can you imagine this? Can you picture this? And so they would come with a gold pitcher, and the momentum would build around the altar once, around the altar twice, around the altar three times, four, five, six, and finally the seventh time. And the priest would remember the Lord our God, and he would remember how the Lord had provided in the wilderness in the desert. Water poured out from the rock. Praise his name. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of great joy. And in case you wonder how much joy, in the Hebrew document called the Mishnah, I read this the other day, and here's what it says. He who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. This was one of the highest moments of a follower of God to witness this. They long to see it. And if you're following along in the notes, what we're going to see as we read this passage is that Jesus stands and cries out, come to me and drink on the same day that this happened. So let's read it. Verse 25 through 53. I'll make my way through. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask. Remember last week we studied this and how Jesus had stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone chooses to do the will of God, they will find out whether or not my teaching is from God or not. And we talked about how Jesus says, look, if you want to get to know me, it's a will thing. It's a will thing. Is your will my will? Or is your will your will? It's a will thing. Whoever chooses to do the will of God God will open up their eyes to see exactly who I am in ever-increasing ways. So at that point, now they're beginning to ask questions. Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. I'll just stop and say this. There were a lot of misconceptions of the Messiah. One of them was, is that this person who was the Messiah would mysteriously show up and no one would know where they came from. The Bible never clearly said that, but that was a misconception, and you see it coming out here in the crowd. They're going, we know that when he comes, we won't know where he came from. Then Jesus, verse 28, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. This is again equating himself with God in such a disturbing way. Notice what it says in verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him 
because his time had not yet come. We saw that because Jesus was completely about God's will, he was also about God's timetable and God's way in his life. But his time had not yet come. What? To be taken and to die on the cross. Verse 31. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest them. Notice that when they begin to hear the crowds mumbling these kind of things and whispering these kind of things, they go, that's it. We've got to take care of this problem now because they're starting to be you know, influenced by this deceiver. And then notice that they send the temple guards. We'll come back to that later. Verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, I pray that if you forget everything else we talk about today, you remember these next two verses. And I've listed them there in the gray box. So I'm going to ask you to read verse 37 and 38 out loud and together with me. Would you do that, please? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. And I'll go on in verse 39. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they talk about Jesus being glorified, by the way, in the Gospel of John, it's a different kind of glory than we think of. We think of glory where you get everything you want and all kinds of perks and all that kind of stuff. For Jesus to be glorified, he always meant the cross. He always meant the moment that he would be the most glorified would be when he died on the cross for us. A little different idea of glory than we have. But it says that he had not yet been glorified. Verse 40, on hearing this, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? They didn't have necessarily access to Matthew and Luke's gospel that tell us that's exactly where Jesus was born. Even though he grew up in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem. They just didn't know that. You see, in a crowd like this, a lot of different ideas can spread without there being correct information and understanding. And so, on hearing his words, some of the people said, sure, this man, okay, verse 40 uh, Two says, does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Verse 43, do you notice this? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, finally the temple guards, remember they were sent to arrest Jesus? Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus in? Verse 46 is so powerful. No one ever spoke the way this man does. Let me read it again. No one ever spoke the way this man does, declared, the, the guards declared. What do they mean by that? They mean he's a good talker. 
I mean, when he talks, there is something so piercing, penetrating, so profoundly affecting by what he says. There's an authority that none of our religious teachers have ever had. There is something about him. Verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Notice how condescending they are. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, it's referring back to John 3, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Notice, all he asks is a question about what's the proper way to conduct ourselves. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And they're so honking mad that they forget that Jonah came from Galilee and a couple other prophets too. You see, friends, sometimes we want to work so hard to get our way or to be right that we are blinded. So if you're following along in the notes, what I want you to see is that in the crowd that day, there were all kinds of reactions, all kinds of ways in what people did with Jesus. Notice the first one. There were some very thirsty people in the crowd. Some are convinced and put their faith in him. Some people in the crowd that day were convinced. They came to the conclusion, they said, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This is the one. God is doing everything in his central plan for humanity. He's it. I'm convinced. And I'm not only going to be convinced in my mind, I'm going to trust him with my life. And they put their faith in him, believed in him. They were thirsty. Some are conflicted, like the temple guards. They're kind of thirsty, but not thirsty enough to know what to do. Remember the temple guards? They had this assignment to go arrest him, and instead they got arrested by him. And as they met and listened to him, went to arrest him, as they listened to his words, all of a sudden they had this experience where one side of them said, there is something about this man that we can't put our finger on. But when he talks, he sounds a lot like God. There was another side of them that said, but if I, if I respond to him, if he is the Christ, then that's going to really mess up my life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've gone through this. I've gone through this. I knew sometimes as I listened to different teaching that God was talking to me. Jesus is talking to me. But if I trust him, it's going to mess up my well-planned life, my carefully ordered life. They were conflicted. Some are contrary, like the religious leaders, if you're following along. Some are not thirsty at all. They're contrary, like the religious leaders. What's contrary mean? Sometimes some of us can look back on certain days and our family members will say, you're so contrary today. What do I mean by that? I mean... You're against everything, you're opposed, you're moving in the opposite direction, and this is what the religious leaders were. The only thing is, before they moved in the opposite direction, they wanted to take Jesus out. They hated him. They were contrary in every way. I don't care what he says. He can't be it. I don't want him in my life, okay? Fourth group is, some are curious, like Nicodemus. Some are curious, like Nicodemus. Do you remember way back when we studied John 3? Nicodemus was one of their number. So even though they're saying all this stuff, Jesus still had believers among the religious leaders who were becoming interested in him. And Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night. 
Why? Because it's really not smart. Do you see how they treated him when he asked a simple question? So he goes by night, and he goes to Jesus and says, no one could say and do the things you're doing unless God was with him. Something about you, Jesus. And Jesus immediately goes for the juggler, you must be born again. Excuse me? They have that conversation, and that's still in Nicodemus' mind here at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's curious. The word curious means eager to know more, eager to investigate. Not someone that just goes, well, that's interesting. But a person that's curious feels this sense of, I want to learn more. They're pulled forward. And Jesus has this drawing power on people like he did in Nicodemus. Maybe you felt it. But as he's being drawn, we see that we don't hear about this guy till John 19 again, and then it's the last time we ever hear from Nicodemus. It's after Jesus has been crucified. On the day he was crucified, they wanted to get his body in a tomb in order not to break the Sabbath because the sun was starting to go down on that Friday night. So they get his body with the help of Joseph Arimathea, another one of the religious leaders, and Nicodemus. They get permission to bury Jesus' body in a tomb that Joseph Arimathea owns. And the Bible says in John 19 that Nicodemus is the one that supplied all of the expensive ointment and spices to prepare his body. For him to go public like that shows that he moved from being curious, becoming convinced. And when he did that, Nicodemus was on a different road than he'd been before. I wonder if there's some people here today that are curious, and it won't be long before you move from being curious convinced. It's one of the reasons we exist as a church, is that people can meet Jesus along with us as we're meeting him too. So where are you? What one of these would describe you right now? Would you put your name next to convinced? Would you put your name next to conflicted? Would you put your name next to contrary? Would you put your name next to curious? I can't answer that for you. But what you and I do with Jesus and how we respond to what he said that day at the Feast of Tabernacles is the ball game. It's everything. Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you can find life in his name? He uses this powerful phrase. I love it. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. You know, I don't think I appreciate water as much as some people because it's everywhere. I go to grocery stores, and there's just aisles full of bottled water. I can walk right out here in the hallway and go to a water fountain. We have water in our office, hot and cold, drink it all day. It took me going to Ethiopia to realize that some people treasure water more than we do. Some people live in a regular kind of way on the brink of being so thirsty that they can faint. I played tennis a lot, and a couple years ago, I went down to Florida. I was playing with a friend down there, and we were playing one morning, and it was so hot, so muggy, that we couldn't even play two sets. I was like, I thought I was going to faint on the court, just because it was so oppressive. And I remember when I lifted a water bottle to my lips, I remember thinking to myself, this is a privilege. I need water more than I thought I did. You know, you can't go without water very long. You can go without food, but you can't go without water. And Jesus says, neither could the people in the desert and neither can you, spiritually speaking. And so, what gives? Well, here's what I want to talk about, streams of living water. Have you seen something like this before? I thought this video might help us leave the building temporarily. <laughs> the sound of that noise 
renews my soul. When Jesus says streams of living water, he doesn't mean just living water in some kind of poetic way. Living water meant running water, moving water. I was walking with Trish the other night past Washington Park, and the pond isn't moving water. It's all kind of creeping crud in there. See, it's stagnant. But there's something about running water, moving water, that has that kind of vitality to it. Some friends introduced us to Crested Butte, Colorado a few years ago, so our family's gone out a number of summers. I took this picture, or Trish did, and and we just found a certain spot we love to go as a family and stand by. I love just the white crashing. Jeremy, our oldest, is a photographer before he was married, and so he wanted to get close and make his mom nervous. This is Luke, our other son. He wanted to make his mom nervous, but then then, so did I. And so (laughs) you see that there's just, there's something about being close. The streams of living water. There's a vitality to it. And there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians and there is no vitality to them, like Jesus intends. And so there are many people that aren't Christians that they wonder if that's possible. So let me just unpack this section before we close. First, notice if you're following along that Jesus makes this invitation to anyone who's thirsty and comes to him. He makes this invitation to anyone who's thirsty and comes to him, and you probably know this already, but out to the right, I list John 4. This isn't the first time Jesus has offered this invitation to somebody. There was once a sinful woman from Samaria who went to the well at noontime to avoid all the talkers, all the gossip, all the looks. Jesus met her there. John chapter 4, you can read it. If you haven't listened to Steve's message, I urge you to do so. Fantastic help what we're talking about. This woman had been married five times and was now living with the man she was with. Her life had gone completely opposite of how she hoped. And there at that well, Jesus said, I have living water that can bubble up in your life and move in your life in a way you don't have to keep living like this. She was thirsty and she knew it and she came to Jesus and that very day, she began to experience what Jesus was talking about. And not only that, but because it was inside her life flowing, it began to flow to other people in her village. And they began to find streams of living water through Jesus as well. I love Psalm 42 when I was in college. These words, when I was in a really dry time, I memorized and they were so helpful. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There's this thirst for God. Second thing I want you to see is that streams of living water, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit here. I love this. This is so powerful. And we're going to actually teach a whole lot more on the Holy Spirit when we get to John 14, 15, and 16, which was all recorded the night before he goes to the cross. Why? Because he wants to make sure his disciples really get this. That the Holy Spirit is going to be the key. He's just like me. He's the spirit that's been dwelling in me. He's the streams of living water in me. I want to give you that gift. But the Bible says in verse 39 that Jesus could not just give this gift to anyone. He could only give this gift after he was glorified. Now stay with me on this. This means that just as water could not come out of the rock in the desert with Moses until it was struck. The Holy Spirit cannot live in unholy people until Jesus was struck on the cross for your sin and mine. And there at the cross, streams of living water began to flow out 
and he would send his Holy Spirit on those who would believe in him. And that was, again, this was recorded before he was glorified. So now you and I live on the right side of the cross. You know what that means? When you and I come to believe in Jesus, that very moment, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And he begins to give us new life, new vision, new power, new encouragement, new strength. And that leads to this third thing. Whoever believes in Jesus has power to bless others. Oh, he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. In other words, take me into your life. Let me come into your life in a deep and profound way. And as, I, as you do that, streams of living water will begin to flow not only from you and through you, but to other people. And you'll be able to bless other people. Romans 5, 3 through 5, look at this. I've met some people, by the way, that you have gone through something very tough. And people said, how do you do it? And you don't know how to explain it except that Jesus has given you streams of living water. It's the only way to understand it. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Now, read this last verse with me, please. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love Streams of living water. I've been telling you a lot about Corey Tenboom. I want to tell you one more thing in my reading of her book, Life Lessons from the Hiding Place. Some of you know that after she got out of the concentration camp, she began to tell others about her experiences because she remembered her sister Betsy's words, we must tell them, Corey, what we have learned in this terrible place. So she invited all their neighbors that lived around the house where they had been arrested there in Holland now that she was back. As Corey began to tell her experiences there in the concentration camp, one of the neighbors said, I am sure that it was your faith that carried you through. My faith, Corey said? I don't know about that. My faith was so weak, so unstable, it was hard to have faith. When a person is in a safe environment, having faith is easier. But in that camp, when I saw my own sister and thousands of others starve to death, where I was surrounded by men and women who had training and cruelty, then I do not think it was my faith that helped me through. No, it was Jesus. He who said, I am with you until the end of the world, it was his eternal arms that carried me through. He was my certainty. If I tell you that it was my faith, you might say, if you have to go through suffering, I don't have Corey Tenboom's faith, but if I tell you it was Jesus, you can trust in him, and he who helped me will help you and do the same for you. Now I know that my own experience showed me that even in that deep place, he was greater still. And then she said one time in a letter to a friend, I pray that God will use me 100%. Here's the phrase, streams of living water is what I pray for. My friends, you do not have to leave this place today without knowing the streams of living water that Jesus Christ can make available to you because he was struck on the cross and he is so good. He loves you. And so, the last question in the notes is simple. Am I learning to come to Jesus? That phrase, come to me, means come and keep on coming. It's not just a one-time event, it's a lifestyle. Am I learning to come to Jesus day by day, hour by hour, to revive and flow out of me? To revive and flow out of me. If you've ever been incredibly thirsty to the point of fainting, you know that the minute... The water touches your lips. You begin to revive. You begin to know a life in his name. 
some of you, today he's asking you to come to him. And so in this next few moments, will you? Can you say, revive me, Jesus? I'm thirsty. Revive me. Maybe you've already taken that step, but you've gotten either away from Jesus or you're going through a tough time and you need to know that these streams of living water will keep replenishing and flowing through your life. Then sing, revive me, Lord. Let this be your prayer. Revive me, Lord, by your streams of living water. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that that would become our personal prayer this morning. That we would look to you, the rock, the spiritual rock that was struck so that water could flow out towards us and flow into us and within us and from us with you living in our lives. I pray that in these next few moments that there would be heart conversations where people in the silence of their lives would, would begin to interchange with you and say, Jesus, I have been conflicted. I want to trust in you. I have been curious, but I've never stepped across the line. I need you to revive me and give me life in your name. I pray that there'll be people that say, I've gotten away from you. Revive me, bring me back to a place maybe like I've never been before, but revive me, O oh Lord. Let this be our prayer. Corey Timboom said one more thing. She said, the only people that can't come to Jesus are those that think they're too good. None of us are too good. So I hope you'll come to Jesus today or come to him again. Find that he is the one who can give streams of living water no matter what you face for eternity. What an incredible gift. Let me pray. Lord, now I have been asking you, I ask again, would you help each one of us know exactly where we are with you since you're the most important person in the universe and all of God's plan hinges and pivots on you. Show us that what we do with you, not only once, years ago, or maybe today, but every moment of our life, is the difference between streams of living water and the desert. Help us, O oh God, to come to you if we haven't, and to keep coming to you if we have. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.